0: Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss and lessons learned from maritime disasters. Uh, This is a bonus episode, so you know who we are. We are recording this in July, but this is actually a makeup for June where we weren't able to record anything bonus. And we'll be recording another bonus maybe the next two weeks uh, for our true July bonus, maybe a movie or Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, So how's it going,
1: Taylor? No, it's not too bad. It's weird doing this on a Tuesday morning.
0: I had the hardest time figuring out what day of the week uh, it was, because yesterday we had a half day at work, Mm -hmm. so a half day of class, and Katie and I had gotten tickets to Asteroid City
1: to go see that in the theater. I want to see that. It
0: was really good. We both really enjoyed it. We both really like Wes Anderson's
1: movies. I think it comes out on digital on the 11th, so I think I'll just wait and... Dude it then. At this point,
0: yeah, it was very, it was very good. Um, nice. I can I can see why it has like mixed responses to it, mm-hmm. but we both really enjoyed it. Nice. Um, but it was weird because like four forty, you go in and it's like the afternoon. You come out and it's it's basically nighttime.
1: That is a weird time to go to a movie.
0: And you know, it's almost it's almost seven when we got out, and it was a Monday, but it felt like a Friday because I had you know gotten off early, mm-hmm. um, and then off today, so today kind of feels like a Saturday. Right. And then going back tomorrow will be weird. And then a short week. So
1: I think that's the one and only good thing about working at night is like, I can enjoy all of today, like Mm -hmm. stay, like be up late and everything and then still have all day tomorrow.
0: That is nice. I have some grading and some essay feedback to do at some point today.
1: The only downside is I think I went to bed at about four last night and it is currently 950. So ah, you make compromises places.
0: We had some people doing fireworks around us here, and I honestly think that none of, I don't think any of the fireworks woke me up, but Katie woke me up to tell me about the fireworks. <laughs> and like, I heard one of them when I woke up, it was, it sounded like a literal mortar firing.
1: Yeah, um, they've relaxed the firework loss in Ohio, mm. and Percy the golden doodle is not having a good time. Yeah, he hates it. He just goes to the basement and stares in a corner.
0: Well, even Josie was reacting to it, and Josie doesn't respond much to anything that's like a any sort of man-made machine mm-hmm. type stuff. She doesn't really respond at all. Like vacuum, you can just vacuum right around her, and she just like won't move. But yeah, the fireworks—I guess it was yesterday—were were really. You could tell she was responding to it.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I'm not really a firework person. I think it's fine, like, on Fourth of July or, like, around it or whatever. But, like, when it's, like, three weeks from now and people are still shooting off random stuff that they have, like, that's when I find them annoying. Yeah. Like, at a certain point, I don't want to listen to, like, the percussive thud.
0: People don't, like, clean up their shit afterwards. Uh-huh. That's, that's annoying. That's the problem yeah. around us. You got kids in our complex that they'll do that and they just don't clean it up. Which is like, hey, kids are kids, but uh, okay. Parents, get out there and clean that shit up.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, like, like they didn't buy them themselves.
0: So anyway. We're here. Uh, We are recording on the 4th of July. Uh, We are going to discuss an article that I came across at some point during research for other episodes. I think it might have been when we talked about the Union blockade Mm -hmm. during the Civil War, because we talked about Florida a little bit. I think that's maybe where I found this. This is a 2013 article from the Journal of Southern History. Interesting. By Irvin Winsborough and Joe Knetch. Uh the article is called Florida Slaves, The Saltwater Railroad to the Bahamas and Anglo American Diplomacy.
1: Nice. That is an interesting concept I've not heard of.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this caught my attention. Uh that was a new term for me. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh,
0: you know, we talk about people escaping from slavery in the US. The focus is on those who escaped northward, you know, to either a free state or even further north to Canada after the Fugitive Slave Act was passed in. 1850,
1: I think. Yeah, it's weird being so close to Cincinnati and seeing like how it was like a central point in all of that mm-hmm. of like crossing the Ohio there and everything. Have
0: you been? Is the what is it? The
1: Civil Rights Museum? I have not been there, and it's down like kind of in the Banks area where like the ballparks are. Is it specifically an Underground Railroad Museum, or I think it is. I think it's like the National Underground Railroad okay. Museum.
0: Because yeah, that's one that next time we're in Cincinnati, I'd like to go to.
1: Yeah, I would definitely want to check that out at some point just to see what all entails, because I have not been there.
0: It's like right across from where the Reds play, right?
1: Yeah, it's like the Banks Complex down there. like the, the Bengal stadiums down there. Taylor Swift was recently there. It's all I've seen in the news for the last week. <laughs> I'm literally on the um, National Underground Railroad, Railroad Museum's website, and it says due to increased activity in the area this weekend, they do not encourage you to come. T Swift is keeping people from learning about civil rights.
0: Add it to the the long, long list of complaints against Taylor Swift.
1: <laughs>
0: so the article here it highlights a different avenue of escape that was available to some of those enslaved individuals in the American Southeast, and that's the British Caribbean. Uh, so specifically, the Bahamas. And just to look at a, a general idea of distances involved here, Grand Bahama Island is just a little over sixty miles east of the Florida mainland. So if you're measuring right from like like a straight shot from like Jupiter, Florida, mm-hmm. um, so just north of like Boca Raton, it's very, very close uh, to Grand Bahama. And then southeast of that, you've got New Providence with the city of Nassau, which is going to be kind of the destination for a lot of these uh, people. Escape slaves who manage to acquire a vessel of some kind. You've got a relatively short span of water to jump across to reach British territory where slavery didn't exist for much of this time um, and therefore wasn't legally recognized. Mm-hmm. So the article here, it focuses on one particular escape that led to a bit of a diplomatic standoff between the US and Britain. So yeah, we're, are we ready for an episode where the British Empire in the 1800s are the good guys?
1: <laughs> Happy July 4th.
0: This episode's not about a disaster per se. The bonus, mm-hmm. we can do that. If it's a disaster, it's a disaster for some of the worst people in the world. So here we go. Reading stuff from Southern politicians, American politicians, but specifically Southern ones from, you know, the 1820s, 1830s, Mm -hmm. it's just like truly mind-bending levels of racism.
1: Yeah, it's just like on a basic level.
0: You know, reading about anything in American history, you're used to a certain amount of it, but just, wow, you guys are really, really into this, aren't you?
1: Yeah, like there's a difference between like you read an article about how the Irish are a bunch of drunks and woman beaters versus... What they say about any non-white person. (laughs) We're going
0: to get to uh, some of John C. Calhoun's conspiracy theories later, and they are insane.
1: (laughs) He looks like he would be a guest on Alex Jones in the pictures that you see of him.
0: I also think that the one picture that always goes around, I think the picture that we shared also, it's him like, I feel like it's like a couple weeks before he died of like, (laughs) I don't know, tuberculosis or some disease like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, speaking of language, a note on language here. There's some direct quotes uh, that talk about enslaved or formerly enslaved persons in language that would have been acceptable to contemporaries, but decidedly not to modern ears. I'm specifically talking about the use of the word Negro that will come up in a few quotations. Um, So here we go. The escape being discussed in this article happened in July of 1843, and it was first described in St. Augustine's Florida Herald.
1: As follows. On Tuesday morning last, our city was thrown into a state of unusual excitement by the announcement that Negroes composing the crew of the U.S. transport schooner Walter M. had absconded the night previous. It was ascertained that they had taken the schooner's boat, compass, and spyglass, a quantity of bread, pork, and water.
0: In the afternoon, the Walter M.'s boat was found near Fish's Island, about two miles south of the city, and towards night, a large whale boat belonging to the pilots, which had been hauled up and repaired, was missing. It appeared, beyond a doubt, that the runaways had stolen the boat and put to sea for a long voyage, and it's presumed with the intention of making some of the Bahama Islands. Besides the crew, three other Negroes have gone with them, among them the notorious Andrew, who made some noise in the beginning of our Indian troubles.
1: Two of the Negroes belonged to W.H. Williams, Esquire. One to General Hernandez, one to Jacob Mickler, one to Miss Ash, one to Colonel Gu, and one to Colonel J.M. Fontaine of this city. With one or two exceptions, they were thought to be the most faithful Negroes and stood high in the estimation of their owners.
0: I, I didn't pursue this further, but I'm, I'm kind of interested in... The story and provenance of a of General Hernandez.
1: Yeah, I kind of want to know how he got there. Also, are either one of those colonels real colonels?
0: Probably not.
1: Everyone's a colonel.
0: I just think that J.M. Fontaine.
1: That sounds like a King of the Hill character, like that owns uh a business or something.
0: So naturally, the escape of these, you know, faithful slaves, uh, it was a cause for concern in the surrounding areas.
1: I'd be a faithful slave, too, until I saw a chance to escape. Right.
0: Yeah. Getting <laughs> what into choices the, do I have? Seeing some of the mindset here is very evident in the way that this is discussed. Uh, so this led to a $350 reward being posted for slave catchers in Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina who are willing to pursue the fugitives. That's a lot of money.
1: It for is. For that time.
0: And, and I believe it said that also they would cover expenses within reason, because you got to figure if this becomes like a maritime chase, they could end up Mm -hmm. spending quite a bit of money uh, trying to track these people down. For sure. For slaveholders in the coastal south, the escape would have been bad enough as it was, but it was aggravated by another detail that came to light shortly after.
1: In subsequent issues of St. Augustine, Nassau, and Savannah newspapers, reports noted that the escapees had timed their flight to coincide with the anticipated appearance of a British ship in the vicinity of St. Augustine although it is not known whether a British ship did appear in the expected time. The City Council of St. Augustine soon made claims to the U.S. Secretary of State that
0: a power whose possessions are in our immediate neighborhood, in all likelihood created in the Bahama Islands, a regularly organized system for the abduction of our slaves or for aiding and abetting them in escaping
1: from their owners. That's a crazy paragraph you just read.
0: Well, I think it's, it's very telling about the mindset of American slaveholders at the time. Why would my slaves, who I'm very nice to, <laughs> want to escape, if right. not for some outside influence who's corrupting them and making them think that there's a better life somewhere else?
1: How dare someone want to risk their life in a boat and go to freedom?
0: Like, I, I trust these people very much. Why would they want to leave?
1: it's it is almost like people getting on boats and taking a dangerous voyage is sort of an evergreen thing in human like history like when there's something to flee that's Mm -hmm. how you do it sometimes
0: yeah i mean for for as we'll see here this is kind of a different situation but you'd have to think in some of these you're probably doing this without people who have experience sailing
1: yeah because if you're if you if like say it's you and a couple buddies that don't really know how to pilot a boat but like there's a boat there and you don't want to be a slave anymore like I guess you take your chances in the ocean.
0: We've said that, you know, distances with any sort of um, sea travel can be deceiving. You know, a mm-hmm. relatively short stretch can be very dangerous. And even more so if you don't have the experience to do it. So if you remember the first quote we read, some of these escapees in our, uh, in our story today, they do have maritime experience. Mm-hmm. They probably would have been confident in their ability to navigate this whaleboat.
1: I think that'd be like far more common along the coastal areas of like North Carolina, Virginia, South Carolina, that kind of thing that like you just you work in trades that are more maritime based.
0: Yeah, this this gets into a really one of the more interesting elements of this story. I I think the idea of enslaved persons serving as crew on ships isn't something that is super common knowledge. That's not Mm -hmm. that's certainly not the image that most Americans have of slavery in the South. You know, you you have the image of, you know, the sun beating down on mm-hmm. a cotton field with, you know, hundreds of slaves working in the fields. And that was the reality for thousands, tens of thousands of these people. But you know, based on different areas, you do have different realities in what slavery looked like.
1: Yeah, I think we always have had a little bit of a different view on it. Not on it, but of just of it because I think the image that a lot of people have is very much the deep South, mm-hmm. like Mississippi, Alabama, places, right. Georgia, Texas. And like being so rooted in North Carolina, it's different.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: there's tobacco fields, but overall, like especially where we've been, like there's not a lot of cotton. That's not right. a crop that's really grown. Um, there's like all these other things that enslaved people were used for that. Yeah, like you said, like it's not the classic image from, you know, media that you think of.
0: And I think one reason that doesn't get discussed as much, and I I think this is a good reason, is because when that is brought up, it tends to be brought up in a way to sort of exculpate slave owners Mm -hmm. and say, oh, well, it wasn't even that bad. You You know, the big, brutal cotton fields, that was only for some slaves. You know, a lot of slaves had a really comfortable existence and their owners really loved them and took care of them.
1: Yeah, like, I'm sure some did, but that doesn't make it.
0: I, I think the reason that, though, like the the difference is because it so quickly slides into that conversation and that's how mm-hmm. it often gets used. And so here we we do kind of have a difference, a different setting, not based on what crop is involved here, but just the trade in general um, mm-hmm. of, you know, working as uh, sailors.
1: I, I think what you're trying to say is you absolutely don't have to hand it to slave owners. Exactly.
0: Um So, yeah, there's there's a pretty long history of slaves serving in maritime roles, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. since the colonial period. Quoting here from W. Jeffrey Bolster's Black Jacks, African-American seamen in the age of sail.
1: Slaves constituted only two or three percent of the mid to late 18th century population in Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts, but frequently lived clustered in maritime towns such as New London, Portsmouth, and Boston. Maritime slavery shaped local black society until the American revolution. Free black seafaring shaped it thereafter.
0: And that book um, by Bolster, that's one that I've had for a while. I've used it for different references, but I've never sat down and read it cover to cover. Um, Mm -hmm. I'd like to do that at some point soon.
1: I think that is interesting because like, there are these little communities of African Americans that spring up in New England and stuff that – aren't necessarily you know after like they say like after the civil war or after the american revolution they're not slaves anymore so like what do you do if you live in massachusetts and you live on the coast like you're probably going to be involved in fishing or whaling like it's just Mm -hmm. it's that's the jobs that are available and i know they talk about that in the um the uh whale ship essex in in that whole story Mm -hmm. that there's a long tradition of black whalers it's very interesting
0: We've covered it uh, in one of our I want to say it was another bonus episode where we talked about race relations in a maritime context in the 1800s and how even if it was by no means equal, there was there was a certain level of, you know, if you're if you're uh, you know just kind of a common sailor, whether you're black or white, the captain's probably treating you like shit. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's a certain amount of leveling that happens there. It's a lot of interesting dynamics here that I'd certainly like to read more about. I know there's a good bit of research into, you know, black seafarers um, Mm -hmm. in the age of sail. So uh, so by the early 1800s, the numbers of enslaved mariners had declined in the south with only one to two percent of the crew lists from Savannah being occupied by enslaved individuals. But there's also some interesting struggles here between merchants and state governments. Classic battle between business and regulation. With the states seeking greater restrictions on the movement of slaves, while southern merchants sought to preserve, I, I'm using the term freedom of movement, this is relatively speaking. These people are still enslaved, the merchants just want them to be able to physically go to different places.
1: Basically, they want to be able to sail a load of cotton to Boston and not worry about the slave jumping off, correct?
0: Exactly, because the states are trying to pass laws restricting this because they, they don't want to lose the manpower, or they don't want to risk losing the manpower.
1: That has to be weird in a way too, because like you literally can't sail to another country mm-hmm. with a crew like that. The moment you sail to France, I'm going to step off that boat and be like, I'm not a slave anymore. Make me. And yeah, you see instances of
0: this uh, certainly with Britain, where you know after Britain outlaws slavery, saying it physically does not and cannot exist within the bounds of you know England or Britain. Mm-hmm. You you have that where the legal – that's the basis of what we're going to talk about here today is the legal standing of ownership of a human being in a place where that's not legally recognized. Mm-hmm. From Bolster again, uh, he's writing about the merchants of Charleston, South Carolina.
1: They spoke of the great pains and trouble with which they prepared those slaves for duties of mariners, and insisted that slave sailors were still vital to South Carolina because there are no white seamen belonging to the state and in the summer season particularly none are to be procured
0: what i'm reminded of here is you know your your politicians uh, primarily but not not exclusively in the south you know who rail against illegal immigration and you know undocumented labor uh, mm-hmm. to score to score points on the national stage and you know win an election mhm and then you see local business
1: owners Farm owners.
0: Being like, uh, what the hell? Where did where are all of my people? I, I need I need this labor force.
1: Yeah, I, I was listening to um, Trash Future and they're talking about this, that the UK has cracked down on a lot of their migrant labor mm-hmm. and like some of the conditions that their migrant labor works under. And it's very similar to what goes on here, but it's like the most vulnerable people being taken advantage of constantly. So it is it's very interesting
0: here. We have that it, you you have a lot of these situations uh, reading about this time period where you have uh, kind of the words on the page make it seem like a like this is like a liberal standpoint of oh these people should be allowed to to work in these fields when like it's done for a very uh, cold and calculating practical reason. Uh, it has nothing to do with the morals of it. It's It's everything to do with wanting to make more money.
1: Or, um, like how now we do the thing where the it'll be like mothers for Liberty, but really it's like an anti-trans group or something like that exactly it's funny reading more and more history and especially um primary sources, you kind of start to realize that like none of this is new like mm-hmm. as much as we it's like changed in the modern world and the digital world, like all of these things used to happen like the same like we're dealing with the same issues
0: yeah and i think from that like you, you point out the the bad guy side of it but i think reading it's also important because you it does give you a perspective that there's also always been people who were on the right side mm-hmm. of these things even from a modern perspective um, mm-hmm. using that historical relativism of oh well it was normal at the time and you see that it very much wasn't 100 an accepted practice you had plenty of people who Knew this was wrong and they had justifications, whether, you know, biblical or otherwise for why this was wrong.
1: One of the most evil things to ever exist is the British Empire. And like they figured it out Mm -hmm. before the United States.
0: (laughs) Exactly. So back to this particular group of escaped slaves. It appears the plan had been to simply take the Walter M's boat directly to the Bahamas, Mm -hmm. um, but the wind and sea conditions had driven them south closer to the tip of Florida. Uh, And they had commandeered that second vessel to make their escape. So elsewhere, we're kind of expanding out here to some international discussions that will come to play a major role in this story. Um, As of right now, they're unrelated, but they will become closely entwined. Um, So the relationship between Britain and escaped slaves, you know, this had been a point of contention since the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Britain had offered incentives for slaves to run away from their master's. If they would abandon their masters, that was basically harm enough to the to the Americans that it warranted, you know, giving them their freedom. And that was even before slavery had been fully abolished in the British Empire. We talked about that, I think, in the prison hulks episode, Mm -hmm. um, how how much that angered Americans that, you know, you're this is you're you're playing dirty here by offering our slaves freedom. Um, So naturally, this was a situation that worried slaveholders in the South. Always concerned about that possibility of a slave uprising, especially in the decades following the Haitian Revolution.
1: A revolution in Haiti is something I'd like to to learn more about because every source I see talks about how absolutely terrifying this is through like all of the southern United States. This is going to happen. Yeah. And you have to wonder like how much they kept that on the down low from their slaves. Like, you know that that's not something that they wanted stories to be told about or to be seen as like an inspirational act
0: you probably don't want your slaves to know that the streets of charleston could run red with slave owners blood
1: yeah i think that would be bad for them
0: (laughs) so enter george hamilton gordon fourth earl of aberdeen uh, british foreign secretary in london so he was concerned with establishing protocols for the treatment of fugitive slaves in british territories He's not coming into this from a humanitarian perspective. He's coming Mm -hmm. into it from a, I want to make sure that I have my ass covered when this inevitably comes up. I want Mm -hmm. to know exactly what we're going to do with this. I want the protocol hammered down. So he's planning ahead.
1: In particular, Aberdeen noted the lack of legal provisions for the return of such individuals when they had committed a crime in their homeland. Aberdeen argued that under the current treaty obligations, only crimes of a serious nature, such as murder, robbery, arson, and forgery, commanded extradition. Fleeing from slavery was not a crime under British law, and therefore escaped slaves arriving in British territories like Canada and the Bahamas could not be claimed by their masters.
0: What that reminded me of was, um, it's something I've seen before. I don't know the actual legal status or the... Exceptions to this, but how in France, attempting to escape from prison is not in itself a crime
1: because it's like what you're supposed to do. It's like
0: a natural human instinct. So like unless you commit some additional crime, you know, like murder or assault in the process, it it doesn't aggravate your sentence or or,
1: I can kind of respect that, actually. Like, Yeah. Like if you can escape without hurting anybody, like good for you.
0: The whole story centers around the idea that. Britain is not going to Britain's not going to respect something being considered a crime if they don't consider it a crime.
1: Doesn't that feel so American though that even back then we're like, "Hey, we want to tell you what to do in your own country."
0: So despite the overall imbalance of power between Britain and the US, Britain isn't necessarily going out of their way to antagonize the Americans. I think in in most of these situations, you see it in the war of 1812. If there was ever a time when Britain could have focused, you know, 100% of their power on the United States. They they could have wiped the United States off the map. I don't know about with ease, but they could have done it. But mm-hmm. that's never really the case. They're always dealing with something else. You know, they're, they're fighting the War of 1812, while they're also fighting Napoleon. So, you know, Britain has other stuff to deal with. They don't always want to be dealing with the United States. <laughs> in the early 1800s, you've got this very significant expansionist movement in the American government. They're clamoring to acquire new territories for Southern slave owners. You know, this haven for escaped slaves in the Bahamas just offshore, that made a pretty tempting target. You had people who said, well, why don't we just claim that as part of the United States? American anger over the Bahamas, it dated all the way back to Andrew Jackson's invasion of Florida in 1818. Those British island territories they'd served as a refuge for blacks and Seminoles, um, some of whom were black, fleeing from U.S. forces. So in 1825, a ruling had been issued by the British Colonial Office that any American slaves reaching the Bahamas uh, were to be declared
1: free. Sorry, I was just thinking about how much Andrew Jackson would have absolutely hated someone who was both Seminole and black.
0: Actually, a lot of the Seminoles were black. Um, Like,
1: that is just Andrew Jackson's least favorite person ever.
0: The Seminoles are kind of an interesting, like, amalgamation of, of different tribes and demographics mm-hmm. um, Interesting. here um, and yeah like this was a common thing where uh, a lot of escaped slaves who didn't really have the wherewithal to escape you know to the north or to a non-slave territory one of their options was to escape to a native tribe um well, that makes they, sense that you
1: have some level of freedom like where they there, had a much or... better
0: you know possibility of being accepted mm-hmm. uh, not just tolerated but the possibility of you know being a full member of, of this group mm-hmm So at the time of the ruling uh, in 1825, there's about 300 escaped slaves in the Bahamas um, that now are officially granted their immediate freedom. Within a few years, about 130 more slaves had escaped to the Bahamas. Now, what's interesting here about the timing and another reason you could you could kind of see logically why American slaveholders would be really upset is that slavery is still legal in the Bahamas (laughs) at the time. So Britain's not even to the point where they're saying slavery can't exist in our territory. Slavery does exist uh, in the Bahamas, on a much much smaller scale than it does in the American South, but it's it's still legal and it will be for some time.
1: I mean, I feel like don't we do we do the same thing here though? Eventually, where you can't bring new ones in, but you can keep what you have, and you know their descendants are.
0: That's already happened, actually, at this point.
1: Has it? I, don't, I couldn't. I couldn't have told you when that that actually yeah, happened. Yeah,
0: I think it was 1807. Britain bans the slave trade, um, and mm-hmm. then I think we f- we follow in 1808, saying you you can't bring new slaves into the country. So here we have this situation where Americans kind of feel that Britain is just doing this on purpose to make Americans angry. Mm-hmm. They have no opposition to slavery itself. They just want to you know free our slaves to to piss us off. Slavery was legal in Britain's colonies until 1833 uh, when it was formally abolished. I think that was a gradual abolition of slavery. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think it was an immediate thing.
1: I really hope, though, that Britain was just like, yeah, it's our colony. We'll do what we want, thanks to the US. And
0: that's basically what we're going to see here. (laughs) Uh, Quoting here, by the 1840s, the Bahamas had more liberated or escaped slaves than any British colony in the Caribbean. Um, Separate from the abolition of slavery itself, Here we go. Britain had abolished the slave trade in 1807, and they'd routinely use that as a rationale to board foreign vessels under, quote, right of search naval policies.
1: It is interesting that um, Britain is using this power to, like, interdict trade traffic and stuff.
0: Kind of like with any law that's passed for a good reason you could see you know, there's there is always a possibility that yeah you could abuse this for
1: sure uh, well like sometimes that. things conveniently align right mm-hmm. like your your desire as a politician might align with like what's objectively good but you could still do it for the wrong reasons i suppose
0: if i'm an american uh slave owner in the south my first argument is going to be well britain could use this logic to board any vessel if they're saying that it could contain slaves mhm and Especially if that's at the discretion of, you know, the captain of the vessel. Americans saw this, you know, basically as Britain just bullying their weaker competition. But Britain asserted that these actions were necessary to prevent slave trafficking. So,
1: again, they're both right.
0: (laughs) Good guy, Britain. So the 1842 Amistad case also plays a role in our main story today. I'd really love to do an episode about the Amistad. That would be fun. Probably maybe one similar to this, more of a bonus. We could watch the movie. Type topic. Because the captives who'd revolted aboard the Amistad were held to have been illegally confined, none of their actions taken to escape confinement were considered criminal acts. Hmm. Um, And it was John Quincy Adams who argued uh, in their favor for that case, one of his big, big wins. Um, So there was a similar case, though one that I wasn't familiar with. And this is the U.S. vessel Creole, um, which had seen a slave uprising in 1841 in which a slave master was killed. And the 135 slaves made course for Nassau. Britain refused to return the fugitives, though they did initially charge 19 of them with mutiny. Hmm. So, this will get into some of the legalese, but it basically comes down to Britain's not going to prosecute or return any of these slaves unless they've done something that they consider a crime. And here is an application of that saying, well, mutiny is a crime. That is something that we recognize. So, we will prosecute them for mutiny and see see where this goes Uh, an admiralty court ultimately ruled that the use of force had been justified in gaining their freedom as they'd been illegally held captive
1: interesting so it's like a self-defense like argument basically sort of I,
0: i think basically just undercutting the concept of mutiny you know a mutiny is when you are refusing to obey your your um your superior officers saying they can't be their superior officers because they were illegally
1: captive in the first place. Right, yeah, like they're committing a crime to escape something being done to them, essentially.
0: So the Creole affair really, really angered the American South, namely John C. Calhoun. (laughs) Our boy. The guy that we hate and everyone should too.
1: (laughs) He declared the implications of the Creole affair shocking and outrageous and of greater magnitude to the section of the Union more immediately interested.
0: U.S. Secretary of State Daniel Webster.
1: That Daniel Webster?
0: Yeah, yeah, that one. The one. Uh, he complained that the liberation of the slaves was illegal as the ship was operating under U.S. jurisdiction. Britain's counterclaim, basically uh was that <laughs> the ship had been in international waters, so U.S. law didn't apply. Fair. Uh, the issue of fugitive slaves continues to be a diplomatic annoyance for both sides, Uh, resulting in kind of a compromise between Aberdeen and U.S. President-slash-slaveholder John Tyler. Um, The resulting treaty avoided any real straightforward promises to return fugitive slaves in exchange for settling some of the border disputes between the U.S. and Canadian territory.
1: The document included a vaguely worded promise in Article 10 to resolve matters upon mutual requisitions and to deliver up to justice justice. Fugitives upon the issuance of warrants by presiding jurists. But the treaty otherwise sidestepped the thorny issue.
0: So my understanding of this, there's a lot of back and forth here that I'm kind of cutting through, um, is that there's sort of this general promise to say, we we will look into it kind of on a case-by-case basis. Mm -hmm. If you can prove that this person should be uh, extradited back to the U.S., will maybe do it, which is kind of the best promise that Tyler can get out of them. John Quincy Adams, recently of Amistad fame and former president at this point, um, <laughs> was one who saw this attempt to compromise between freedom and slavery for the ultimate non-solution that it was. And he'd become even more concerned about this with the appointment of John C. Calhoun as Secretary of State later on.
1: It is interesting watching like the pre-Civil War era politics that happens from, like, the 40s to the beginning of the Civil War. But like, so many people know it's coming. Like, it's not a surprise, like, when all of that happens. Like, there's so many people, and this no one actually does anything about it.
0: This is not something you can compromise on. You can't compromise on freedom for, for these enslaved individuals. Um, that's not something that will work half and half. So, stepping back from these political negotiations, uh, the article takes us back on the ground in Florida with our seven escaped slaves, or rather, on the ground in the Bahamas, I guess, technically. Subsequent stories began to find new details of the story, uh, including the murder of local German immigrant John Henry Gareen, allegedly committed by the escapees. Hmm. Uh, By October of 1843, the story had expanded in depth and acquired a detailed graphic nature.
1: The southern leaders and newspapers had further sensationalized the story by demanding that Florida Governor Richard K. Call invoke international treaty obligations. To buttress that demand, the paper has detailed the presumed chain of evidence leading up to the the murder through the eyes of Gareen's daughter.
0: Lurid details aside, evidence was lacking, leading the Nassau Royal Gazette to echo the British government's stance on the matter.
1: From their landing here, they are now free men. And unless they have committed some crimes, cannot, we believe, be further molested, as far as the late treaty goes.
0: So here we'll get into some fun back and forth about what America expects versus what America gets on an international (laughs) stage in the 1840s. So warrants for murder were issued for the seven escapees, and it fell to U.S. Marshal for the Southern District of Florida, Joseph B. Brown, to go about obtaining their retrieval. Uh, so cutting through some of that legal back and forth, British authorities in the Bahamas were not really interested in turning over individuals on their territory because of warrants issued in the territory of Florida.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine they would care that much. It's not even a state. <laughs> the governor of the Bahamas,
0: Francis, and I think his name is supposed to be pronounced Coburn, is mm-hmm. how this is traditionally pronounced, determined that the men would only be arrested after a public hearing and the issuing of a local warrant in Nassau in accordance with british law
1: i feel like this guy i mean I, you probably don't become a royal governor without having some connections so i imagine he just wants nothing to do with anyone from the state of florida like he probably thinks he is just better than them
0: i'm just imagining like a us marshal just walking into a courtroom having to talk to a royal governor and any semblance any any thought that he's possibly going to get what he wants out of this situation right <laughs> So the article highlights the nature of black society in the Bahamas which it it forced a radically different interaction with the British upper class than what you had in the American South.
1: By the time US officials were pursuing the Florida fugitives the crown and lesser officials had openly recognized the value of the black majority in the Bahamas as a class of devoted subjects and local imperial practices allowed blacks to own land have access to education, and legally marry. Black Bohemians had grown strong enough in their collective efforts to pressure London for civil and human rights unknown in the antebellum South. Even if the white ruling class held racial beliefs similar to those of nearby American Southerners, the non-plantation form of slavery in the isolated archipelago resulted in greater autonomy and de facto rights for Blacks. I think that's interesting. Um, Basically, like forced proximity, right? Like Mm -hmm. you have to live with these people. You can't do the things that you do in the Deep South and in in the Southern plantations because you like actually have to live with these people. And there is just so many more of them than you.
0: It's interesting to see see the race relations here where you have a more isolated situation Mm -hmm. compared to, you know, how things develop, say, in South Africa. But yeah you you definitely do see a very different society developing based somewhat just on pragmatism saying well this this has to work we we need this colony to work and function,
1: yeah, and I suppose some of that has to do with like i don't I'm not an expert on the Bahamas, but I don't know that they're known for like their natural resources or their like plantations and farming. It's almost like there's nothing to exploit except that we need this piece of land for political and economic reasons is like in our best interest to have positive relations with the people that live there.
0: I think that quote also makes a good point. Sure. Did, did the rich white people in the Bahamas probably have the exact same views as the rich white people in the South? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's not really up for debate. So the government of the Bahamas was given a lot of leeway by the British colonial government. uh, And that was done through the local Nassau assembly, which reflected local interests those local interests were influenced by the fact that the population of the islands was roughly 2000 whites to 10,000 black residents. So even if British officials, they don't feel, even if they don't feel any moral motivation to support the interest of escaped slaves, you can see why there would be a practical one. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. How they, how they treat these escaped slaves is going to be a, a big point of concern for this overwhelmingly black population. So our U.S. Marshal Brown, he presented the indictments during court proceedings on December 28th, fully expecting the indictments to be taken as evidence enough for the seven men to be turned over to his custody. The court did not agree uh, (laughs) that this was evidence of a crime, uh, saying no depositions or sorry, this is quoting from the article. No depositions had been offered into evidence, no witnesses presented and no other viva voce evidence of any kind, placed before the court. Quoting here from the Chief Justice, who is involved with the case.
1: Had any such evidence been offered to us, we would of course have considered ourselves bound to receive it, and to issue our warrant for apprehending the offenders. It is not enough to know that the American jury thought the parties guilty. We ought to know the grounds upon which they thought them guilty.
0: Yeah, and I like how his ruling is basically, you can't just come in here with a piece of paper that says they're guilty and expect me to give them to you. Like, that's not how this works. It's
1: it's like me taking my Burger King cardboard crown and saying (laughs) I'm the king of the intersection.
0: That's not how any of this works. (laughs) So Brown's efforts were unsuccessful, and he returned to Key West on January 3rd without the seven men he'd been sent to retrieve. His efforts, Brown's efforts, were praised in local papers, depicting him as acting with, quote, great prudence, zeal, and discretion.
1: How do they know? I don't know what discretion even means in
0: this context.
1: Not creating an international incident?
0: The St. Augustine News wrote of the negotiations, which they clearly considered to be ongoing.
1: The Negroes being still at large, we can but trust our own government will sufficiently appreciate the importance of this subject. As a precedent to pursue it to such an end as will vindicate the supremacy of our territorial laws.
0: Doesn't it sound kind of pitiful, though? He's like, well, the su- supremacy of our
1: territorial laws. Other states don't even care what you have to say. Right. <laughs> you know, like another country doesn't.
0: Right. So the decisions painted in many American circles as British arrogance run rampant. They're considering the decision of American judges and juries to be insufficient in a court of law.
1: I mean, if I was a British, I'd be like, yes. Yeah. Yep, pretty much. Okay.
0: And yeah, Britain, they they, they kind of go through all the motions of saying, hey, if you can bring evidence here to this court where we currently physically are, happy to deal with
1: it. But they're like, uh, sir, so is the voter fraud over there? Where is it?
0: But this piece of paper that some dude signed and said they're guilty doesn't work. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> uh, the Apalachicola commercial advertiser had the following commentary on March 11th, 1844.
1: Before I read this quote, I know we make fun of British places a lot for their names, Mm -hmm. but Apalachicola is a distinctly like American. It's a very cool one. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. (laughs) The murderers, therefore, must go free because they are Negroes and slaves. No evidence, however strong, will be received by the British government unless the crime is one which the government recognizes the treaty is a mere nullity and all the fair promises and engagements of lord ashburton a mere pretense
0: this is a tone that we see a lot from american white people today of oh well of course this person who's a minority they get whatever they want of course mm-hmm. you know if they were a white person they'd be you know clapped in irons and thrown in prison
1: fortunately for them i guess the supreme court just took care of that
0: Oh, well, of course, they're going to go free because they're, you know, they're black and they're slaves.
1: It's like it's that- evergreen. This like, I'm telling you, nothing's new.
0: <laughs> so by this point, Calhoun has replaced Abel Upshur as secretary of state. And. This is where it gets really fun. Uh, Calhoun had this to say regarding the legal status of the escaped individuals in the Bahamas.
1: It is England, not we, that has made the change in the condition of the Negro portion of her population. Which has led to the difficulty. And we have the right to insist that she shall adopt such proper precautions as to prevent the change from injuriously affecting our rights or security. Is he saying that Britain's too nice to like black people?
0: He's saying that well, if you're gonna change your laws over there, you need to you need to make sure that it doesn't negatively affect
1: us. I don't think that's how that works.
0: It's a very American outlook, I think.
1: That is not how that
0: but also a very modern outlook the idea that giving freedom to one group of people threatens my personal rights or security Mm -hmm. trans rights is is a huge issue recently and you know the idea that granting someone you know the same rights and abilities that you'd give to anyone else takes away from my personal freedom is you know this is the same argument here
1: but but how will i know i'm better than them if i don't have more rights than them
0: calhoun's ideas went even further with him accusing Britain of fomenting,
1: quote, A war between races of the most deadly and desolating character, of the colored races of all hues, against the white. Holy crap. Yeah, this is what I was talking
0: about. Yeah, you're used to racism in, like, American history. Reading this, what the fuck
1: are you talking about? <laughs> this sounds like Sean Hannity talking about Black Lives Matter
0: britain the british empire you think you think they're starting a race war
1: against the whites what they're they're literally fighting a race war against every hue
0: they're the whites that's them
1: (laughs) yeah they're like the king whites
0: (laughs) i gotta drop in the lines from from in bruges when they're talking about the race war (laughs) this ain't gonna be a war where you pick your side your side's already picked for you i don't know whose side i'm fighting on fighting with the blacks Whites are going to get their heads kicked in. You don't decide this shit, man. Well, who are the half-cats going to fight with? with? The blacks, man. That's obvious.
1: But what about the Pakistanis? The blacks. <sighs> what about... I think about it.
0: What about the Vietnamese? The blacks! Well, I'm definitely fighting with the blacks if they cut the Vietnamese. Yeah, that that's... <laughs> uh, yeah, not just racist, but insane is is what we're talking about. This is like pure 1830s 1840s american southern racism
1: not a former president saying crazy shit to the media
0: or although i guess calhoun was just a vice president
1: oh that's right yeah
0: fortunately (laughs) um well that's also the weird thing is i was reading a little bit about this i don't know as much about this period of history but looking at this in retrospect you'd assume that calhoun super racist andrew jackson super racist you'd think they'd be friends and they're not
1: They, they did not bond over that
0: it's just interesting to see that When you're up closer to something, you can kind of parse out the differences of like, oh, well, this person thinks this and this thinks this. Whereas you look back through history, painting with a broad brush, you kind of wonder why you guys seem like you'd be buddies.
1: You think that, but then I think about people at work who I objectively share so many common interests with, but I'm also like, I can't stand to be around you. Well,
0: I mean, in politics now, it's like you look at DeSantis supporters and Trump supporters. You you probably believe most of the same things. (laughs) It's just, just... One of you, for some reason, is inspired by Ron DeSantis. I don't know.
1: (laughs) Well, and then it's like everyone hates Ted Cruz.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, (laughs) Everyone hates Ted Cruz.
0: Calhoun is saying basically Britain is going to use their mastery of the colored races to Uh cut out all their white competition and become masters of the entire world. What? Yeah, Calhoun absolutely not out of place as like a blue check on Twitter or Truth Social, one of our one of our various other places. Yeah, yeah. This is what I'm talking about here. It's so. It's the racism is is expected at this point. That's not even the noteworthy part of this. It's the global conspiracy brain that is kind of the shocking part of this to the modern reader.
1: You expect. Calhoun would have loved the Internet.
0: Yeah, you expect John C. Calhoun to say the most racist shit imaginable. But this is just bananas. <laughs> So Calhoun was further frustrated when Aberdeen directly recognized uh, that Article 10 of the Webster-Ashburton Treaty would just never be allowed to justify the wholesale return of fugitive slaves, (laughs) while also expressing that he may not have personally agreed with the judge's ruling um, in the matter of these seven slaves. So Aberdeen basically says, hey, like, I think the judge made the wrong decision, but he's the judge, and –
1: that's like an easy way though to be like oh yeah i don't want to do yeah. this but the, the boss is making me do yeah. that like you know like when you're a manager and you have to tell like the frontline people something bad and you're like hey this isn't coming from me this is coming from the boss
0: yeah this is coming from the judge so like i i don't know man
1: hey i just know we have to work saturday sorry
0: mhm but then yeah also being very very clear about the idea that like what what do you what do you think is going to happen here mm-hmm. like do you you think that this article 10 of this treaty is going to send 500 people back to you from the
1: bahamas i i kind of have to think that like some of the january sixth defendants like the judge had to ask similar questions like what did what, you, what think, did you I- think was gonna happen
0: yeah like, like, I, just want you, I just want you to tell me
1: walk me you, through that
0: what did you think was gonna happen here <laughs> um so uh calhoun wrote on this matter
1: he indeed disavows the opinion of the nassau judges And declares that the argument and illustration of the court was not adopted by him. And consequently, as far as the government was concerned, no inference like that on which my dispatch dwelt could be drawn from it.
0: So, no progress is made by the time that Calhoun left office in March of 1845. Um, Again, this is very much a settled thing on the British side.
1: Is this like Calhoun's special project? Like, while he's vice president. <laughs> he's like, got you know, other the,
0: things he's dealing with also. Like, you know but... they,
1: like, let Kamala Harris go do stuff every once in a while just to, like, get her <laughs> out and is, about?
0: This is John C. Calhoun's project.
1: I mean, I know, like, vice presidents have varying levels of, like, authority. Like, Dick Cheney invaded a couple countries. And then, like, Kamala, <laughs> they, like, trot her out every so often <laughs> mm-hmm. just to be like, look, she exists.
0: Deploying her to, like, an ice cream stand to, like, take pictures with kids.
1: Uh-huh. Like, that's, I think, I feel like her that's pers- what you're
0: getting. Taking advantage of her personality. Yeah. So at the same time, you've got some other more pressing issues that the general public is more focused on. Um, You know, expansion into Oregon, California, the rest of what's going to become the Western United States Um, people. The
1: The fun stuff.
0: Yeah. You've got a lot of people who are much more concerned about what can we take from Mexico rather than, you know, what is what's the what's the status with Britain?
1: there's so much westward movement. Like, I mean, what, when's the Donner party? Is that like the mid forties? It's like 1847. Yeah. So like, that's all this time where like, that's like the hot thing. Mm -hmm. Like that's the Bitcoin of its day, right? Go out West and get rich. Yeah. The
0: winter of 1846 to 47 for the Donners. Um, So yeah, like this whole article focuses on it and it kind of paints it as this big international thing. And it really wasn't in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. But the argument really just coming down to questions of jurisdiction and where, where is the authority here? And you can see very much here at this point, America isn't the, you know, they just don't have the status to be the bully that they'll eventually become. Um, And Britain can still do what they want, not with impunity, but with, you know, not too many consequences. They don't have to appease the United States here.
1: Yeah, I think that's interesting that um, I don't feel like we see it very often today of the U.S. negotiating not as a peer and not as like kind of being on top, but very much being like the the second person doing the negotiations. So it's interesting um, seeing that here.
0: Yeah, to see like a, a nation just being able to tell the United States no, and that's basically the end of it.
1: Being able to tell them no, and that's, the, yeah, that's that's right, that's the end of it. Because now if someone says no, like, what happens? It's like, are you sure?
0: Yeah. So it's like, oh, so you, you, you do want a new president, I see. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's just very interesting, like, seeing them not be able to do that. You
0: are hiding weapons of mass destruction, I see.
1: <laughs> Show us where the al-Qaeda is.
0: So the seven in question, they retained their freedom, and no further legal consequences came of their escape. I, I don't know what happened to them. At, I don't know what they, you know, got up to after that. Um, but like their names are documented, so that's probably available information. The route to the Bahamas continued to attract escaped slaves, you know, right up until the civil war, you know, the article ends with an assessment of the overall narrative of those who escaped from slavery. The writers point out that there's, there's pretty long documentation of escapes, uh, to the North and and, even to native tribes, uh, in Florida and out West, but there's also significant documentation to be done regarding the third pathway uh, from uh, Texas to Mexico. Is one that they point out as a, interesting, a, an avenue for some of the slaves from Texas. Uh,
1: I mean, it makes sense, right? Like that's a long way to get to Canada.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and with you know, slavery wasn't legal in Mexico, so you had that issue. You know, during like the Texas Revolution, you did have you know slaves who would you know abandon their masters for a very good reason and go somewhere where they wouldn't be enslaved. Right. And so they propose the saltwater railroad as the fourth pathway worthy of discussion as part of a quote, shifting of focus away from the traditional historic geographies of flight to the American North.
1: Yeah, that is interesting. Cause I, I don't think, you know, I know in school, I mean, we, obviously you talk about, you know, the underground railroad and, and things like that. And really like escaping North is the whole thing. Like, right. Like you get across the Ohio river, you follow the drinking gourd, that kind of thing. But you don't ever talk about this. And like, there's so many interesting stories that are only made possible because of these other avenues of escape.
0: Like what we've I mean, like with anything now, whether it's refugees um, in shipwrecks and things like that, or whether it's I mean, like what what constantly goes on in in Palestine and what's going on right now with Israel raiding Jenin. There's always these stories and like you never want to undercut the importance of one or the other. And so same thing here. I, I don't think it's their intention to undercut the significance of the classic underground railroad. Um, Mm -hmm. But more just the fact that, you know, there was only a small subset of slaves that that was even a, a feasible option for. Um, And so, yeah, that leaves you kind of with these slaves in the deep South in Florida, where that was never a a realistic possibility, but there's this other Avenue available Mm -hmm. um, that would have been taken advantage of, which is cool. Yeah. I, I, it's not something I'd ever thought of, um, as a, as a way to, uh, as a way for people to escape slavery.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting looking at it as escaping from the U S versus fleeing, you know, North Africa now, like we're seeing, like, it's weird. It's weird seeing the rules kind of flipped mm-hmm. and how people justified it. Like the cruelty towards those people. Like it's, it's very interesting seeing it rationalized from an American point of view. It's really easy, I think, to watch like the headlines now and be like, oh, well, we would never do that. And it's like, mm-hmm. mm, boy, would we? Well,
0: yeah, because a lot of the same arguments are used. It's like, well, they're breaking the law and that's the end mm-hmm. of story. And, you know, there's many cases throughout history where that is not the end of story. Um, we we would we would say that there's complicating factors there um, with immigration. You hear a lot of, well, they should just come the right way. Mm-hmm. And it's like for a lot of them, that's. Either impossible or it would take long enough to, you know, put them at further risk uh, back where they're coming from.
1: Yeah, like when the system is broken, I I just don't think you can expect people to participate in the system.
0: So that's our talk about article uh, again, that article that we just uh, discussed. Uh, It's by Irvin Winsboro and Joe Knetch. Uh, It's from 2013 in the Journal of Southern History. It's called Florida Slaves, the Saltwater Railroad to the Bahamas and Anglo-American Diplomacy. Uh, so with that i guess that's a wrap on our bonus um we'll get this one edited and out the next few days probably i'll be kind of busy with school stuff but i'll find some time for it um and then we'll get another bonus recorded maybe a movie or something i've got a few other articles also that we'll discuss at some point um but thank you for listening uh thank you for supporting us on patreon if you're listening to this episode and we will talk to you all soon